I was in the fifth grade at Our Lady of Greenwood School and the whole school was involved in selling candy bars to raise money for I don't know what, but uh, every, for every candy bar you, you got, you got one entry into the contest for the drawing for the grand prize, which was a beautiful yellow Schwinn 10-speed bicycle. So the fateful day arrived when it was all over and the principal, Sister James Michael, was in her office. She just came over the PA announcing to the, the whole school, okay, here's the announcements for today and we're gonna have the drawing for the Schwinn 10-speed bicycle. And she says, and the winner, the 10-speed Schwinn bicycle is Quentin Steef. Guys, I had never won anything in my life and I was a poor kid. I didn't have much. My head started spinning, literally. I thought, is this a dream? And it was real. And I went down to the office and I, I got my new Schwinn 10-speed bicycle. It was absolutely amazing. I brought it home. I was so happy. I was so excited. It was amazing. I rode around the neighborhood. I had a brand new bike. I'd never had a brand new bike in my entire life. All the kids in the neighborhood were looking at it. They're all jealous because I've got the Schwinn 10-speed bike. And I loved that bike. And it was great. Rode it for quite a long time. And, and then one day, guess what? Somebody stole it. It was gone. And I was so disappointed. I had put all my kind of hope for satisfaction in this crazy bicycle. And then it was gone. And I didn't have the money to, to buy a new one. So I was just out. And it was one of those early lessons in life that, you know, be careful what you put your ultimate hope and joy in because it could be taken away. And try not to put, put your hope and joy in things that can be lost or stolen. Today I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about finding true satisfaction in life. The book of Revelation is about uh, the blessing that God wants to bring to us. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, right at the beginning of the book, uh, John, through Jesus, uh, uh, through Jesus' own words given to him, says this to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it. In other words, the purpose of this book is to bring blessing to your life. I think a lot of people don't get that about Revelation. They think it's about some, you know, putting timelines together, or predicting the Antichrist or whatever. And guys, we're missing when, when we don't get that. It is about bringing blessing to our lives. So we're going to look at chapter 17 and 18, which is frankly got some crazy uh, symbolism, some incredible images, some freaky kind of trippy uh, uh, symbols that will be hard to understand a little bit. But we'll, we'll get through it. But the point of all of it is to bring blessing into your life. And specifically today, it's about finding true, lasting satisfaction in your life. So to, to summarize where we're going with this in Revelation 17 18, we're going to meet up with some very interesting symbolism, but it, it tells us uh, three things, okay? First, we got the historical realities of what was going on in the first century as they get these images in Revelation 17 and 18. First is this, the first century Christians were a tiny minority who faced tremendous temptations to compromise and immense pressure to conform to the ways of their culture. That's the historical reality. And it's a lot like 21st century actually. Then there's the future events 
of uh, Revelation 17, 18. I do believe that this points to the days in the last, last days when the Antichrist and his allies will oppose God, but Jesus Christ and his people will joyfully triumph over them. And there will be a fall that is coming. And then finally, the thing we'll focus on today is the spiritual truths. And the spiritual truth that I think this, these two chapters are bringing to us is this. This true satisfaction is found not in the city of Babylon, and we'll find out what that means in this passage, but in the kingdom of Jesus. Not in the city of Babylon, but in the kingdom of Jesus is found true satisfaction. So, there's some images, there's some symbols. They were easily understood in the first century. To us, they're a little out there. But these symbols and images are often extreme, vivid, exaggerated for effect, and they certainly will do that today. Uh, I'm reminded of some World War II posters that pick up on some of these Revelation sort of images where you have the two-headed monster with the Nazi and the Japanese opponents attacking the Statue of Liberty and with a bloody knife and with the Allies coming against it through production. Or the, where the freedom plane is flying into the Nazi monster. Both of these are the sort of images that we get in the book of Revelation. So come with me to chapter 17, all right? Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment. That's justice. On the notorious prostitute. And by the way, that's a... Uh, polite translation. You should see it in King James. The notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, this is strange imagery to us, but basically what he's saying here is there's a woman who is, who is seated by the waters, the many waters, which represent these nations. And the notorious prostitute is kind of a cheap and evil imitation of the devoted bride of Christ, the church. So it's, it's put in stark contrast, the kingdom of Jesus and the bride of Christ, the church, to this notorious prostitute, evil, cheap, uh, vulgar, and it's, it's representing, we'll soon find out, what's called the city of Babylon, which is the woman, this woman represents cultures, ideologies, and movements that are opposed to God, opposed to Christ and his people. They're totally out of the ways, uh, out of alignment with the ways of Jesus. And in this passage, we just learned the world as a whole is drunk on her unfaithfulness to God in her spiritual adultery. This is often how uh, sexual immorality is used as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness to the God of Israel. And so she is totally out of the ways of the God of Israel. They have cooperated with her, the people of the nations have cooperated with her in every way, and they've had a blast doing so. They are hammered, drunk, out of control, and unaware of what's happening in their lives. They've just gone along with this ideology and with this culture and with this worldview. He's speaking to the first century, to the Roman culture. The gods, the goddesses, the ideologies, the immoralities, the violence, the lust, the greed of Roman culture. They've just gone along with this. And this woman represents Babylon, who stands for all that 
ideologies opposed to the God of the Bible. That's where we get the setting. Verse 3, then God carried me away in the spirit to wilderness. In the wilderness, the spirit has John on a retreat of sorts. He needs, John needs to see the world for what it really is. To, to look behind the curtain, to reveal the true nature of what is really going on in their culture and in ours and in the last days. See, when you get detached, when you have some time to separate and, and get away from all of this, you see more clearly. Otherwise, if you're just always living in it, it seems normal to you. It's the way it is. You, you come to accept and you become blinded to some of the bad things and the evils of the culture around us, the worldviews that are promoted in our culture. So he gets carried off the wilderness to see it differently. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So she's sitting on the beast. The beast has, which we've met in Revelation 13, is the Antichrist, opposed to God, has all this authority over many nations. I think there are many Antichrists leading up to the final Antichrist of the last, last days. But here the woman was dressed, says he's sitting on this beast, and she was dressed in purple and scarlet adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So she, it's kind of a contrast here. The beast is ugly. The beast is hideous. But the woman is dressed like a queen. She's royal. She's beautiful. She's alluring. She's fascinating. She's rich, sophisticated. She has the wow factor. And a lot of people are taken in by her. The image is an incredible contrast of ugliness and beauty. It truly is beauty and the beast. And many see her as appealing. She's seductive. She's tempting. And it's easy to get drawn in to her ways, to the ways of an evil culture, to the ways of a culture opposed to God. She seems to offer so very much. And most people have drunk the wine. Most people have been taken in, John says, in the culture. The Christians are a tiny minority who have tried to stay calm and stay pure from those ways. But then he pulls back the curtain and says a little bit more about her. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with impurities of her prostitution. So she's got a golden cup and that looks beautiful. That looks interesting. That's rich and luxurious and surely there's something really great to drink in that golden cup. But it's all fraud. It's all fake. It's all just window dressing for the filth that is within her. She looks good. She is a cheap imitation of a bride. She is a prostitute. She, she's beautiful and seductive, but she doesn't really offer anything. There's no devotion. There's no love. It's just cheapness. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery. Not everybody sees her for what she really is, but the people of God can see through her. And the name she has, and in the, in the Roman days, um, for, some, for a prostitute, or a harlot who just didn't care what anybody thought, they would actually wear headbands, advertising their names and what they were, services they were offering. It was actually quite disgusting, but that's how far it went. And on this woman's forehead was written a name, a mystery, which the people of God can see. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. So, Revelation is an unveiling, unveiling the world 
and the cultures that are opposed to God for what they really are. She is Babylon the Great. Now Babylon, the, the, the name of the city, it was an ancient city, uh, you know, it would be uh, near Baghdad, Iraq today, um, but it doesn't exist today. But Babylon comes from the word Babel. And we met Babel in Genesis chapter 11, where they built a tower. And if you read about that, it won't take time to do that now, but this was a civilization that decided they didn't need God, but instead they would go it on their own, make up their own rules about how they would live their lives, and make a real name for themselves. And they cast off all restraints and said, we'll be great and we don't need God. Well, that name got applied throughout history and Babylon becomes the arch enemy of Israel. It is, it is an empire. And Babylon persecuted Israel and conquered them and vanquished them and destroyed their culture and eventually carried them off to, into captivity in the Old Testament. So Babylon then, from this day forward, from that time forward, becomes kind of a symbol of the arch enemies of God, a symbol of all the cultures down through the ages, including Rome and the subsequent ones all the way down to today that are opposed to God, the atheistic cultures, the totalitarian regimes, those that are opposed to the church, that persecute the people of God. So this is what she is. This woman represents Babylon, this culture that's opposed to God. Verse 6, then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to the Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Here, she's actually drunk, but it's, it's not with wine. She, this culture, has become intoxicated with the idea of persecuting the church, with the idea of, of killing believers in Jesus. And this has happened then and even today. There are cultures that are totally opposed to the church. And John says, I'm astonished. Why is he astonished? Because he says, I'm going to show you the judgment of this woman. And so far, all he's seen is this beautiful woman on this hideous beast, and she's killing Christians. And that doesn't sound like judgment to him. There have been all sorts of arts, artwork that has been tried to display this imagery. Here's one, all right? The woman sitting on this beast with all these heads and she's very alluring and she has the cup but it's filled with filth and it's filled with um, the blood of the saints. Here's our first principle. Cultures and ideologies that are opposed to God can be extremely attractive but they're ultimately evil and harmful. It's, it's, it's a warning to us. They look good. They look so fine. They promise so much. They sound good. They have great marketing and a great PR. They rule social media. They attract followers by the millions. But if they promote a worldview and a way of life that is not aligned with Jesus, is contrary to the way of Jesus, they're ultimately evil and harmful to us. They're narcissistic, entitled, immoral cultures and civilizations and ideologies confused and greedy and lustful and angry. They promise so much, but they're evil. And they ultimately only bring harm to the people of God and to everyone. Hurt, disruption, destruction, depravity, and disappointment. So be careful of being captivated by Babylon. She looks fine, but she's dangerous. 
Be careful of the ideologies and the worldviews that you take in. Are they really true or are they contrary to the ways of Jesus and the scriptures? Keep going. Verse 7. Then the angel said to me, why are you so astonished? He's kind of chiding him a little bit. You know, hang on. Don't be, he's kind of taken in by her just a little bit because he doesn't understand it fully. He says, I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Now, he begins this explanation, and we're not going to take time to do it today. But verses 8 through 12, which we're going to skip, is a complicated description of a progression and coalition of powers that are opposed to God. Most likely, it describes historical kingdoms and rulers that will lead to the final stage in the last, last days of many evil and anti-God rulers and false teachers down through history. And in the last, last days, a final antichrist who will arise. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about this, um, come on out to the digging deeper, because we're going to talk about answering tough questions about the justice of God and the things that we learn in Revelation 15 through 18. That's Monday night uh, uh, at 6.30 in the chapel. So he gives her an explanation of these coalition of rulers that come together under this Antichrist. But that's the future events. But there's still... Uh, spiritual truths to learn from this. Be careful of those who oppose Jesus. They have one purpose. Verse 13. And they give their power and authority to the beast. So these anti-Christian leaders, rulers, ideologies, cultures, they're they're just following in the ways of the spirit of Antichrist. They're against Jesus. And it says, verse 14, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of Lords and He is King of Kings. Those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. So in other words, in our day, in the first century, and in the last last days, there are some who are all in for the ways of anti-Christian ways. They are collaborators. They are conspirators. They, they hate the church. They hate Jesus. They follow the ways that are contrary to the ways of Jesus. And since his followers, who are true followers, won't go along, they turn on them. They say, we need to oppose them. And they may even say, we need to destroy them. This is sober. And here it brings us to our second principle. And that is, the spirit of darkness that we've been reading about, Babylon, first tempts you by offering satisfaction. That's the first tries to allure you, tries to look good, tries to offer you satisfaction. Follow me in this ways and you'll have all your deepest longings met. But when you, some people give into that and they go the ways of Babylon. But others, the true followers of Jesus say no to that and they resist that. And when they first, she tempts you by offering satisfaction, but when you refuse, then persecutes you if you don't conform. This is the way it always is with ideologies and cultures that are contrary to Jesus. First Babylon is a tempter and then a persecutor. That's the way Babylon always works. Both ways, temptation and persecution, seek to gain the allegiance of our hearts, either willingly through temptation or unwillingly by brute force of persecution. But the 
incredible promise of this scripture is the lamb conquers. His sacrificial love and his mercy demonstrated most fully on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus overcomes and outlasts all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus has so much more to offer us and so much more to offer to the world if they will only listen. His mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his grace, his purity, his power, wisdom, forgiveness, hope, joy, and peace are so much greater than Babylon and the woman seated on the beast that seek to allure us in with false promises of satisfaction. Here's the third principle. We can expect fierce opposition when we don't conform, but be encouraged. Jesus' kingdom will prevail. And we've already seen it. Jesus' kingdom has already outlasted the Roman Empire the first century. In fact, it won the day. Eventually, millions and millions of people, they didn't follow the Roman emperors. Eventually, Rome fell. The church goes on. The church of Jesus Christ endures. And it will outlast and it will conquer every kingdom of this world. No matter how oppositional they are, no matter how fierce their uh, persecution is, eventually they will bow the knee to King Jesus. Verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is King of kings, He is Lord of lords. And those with Him are called, are chosen, and are faithful. This is, our, this is where we come in. We are called to follow Jesus and walk in His steps. That's our, that's our job in the midst of wherever we are right now, in the midst of where you're in your workplace, you're in your neighborhood, you're in the campus, you're on, in the classroom. Follow the ways of Jesus. You're called to that. You're chosen. You're not just anybody. You're chosen by God to specially represent him in this world, to, to be an ambassador, to be salt, not mixed in with everybody else, to be stand out, to be light, to shine in the darkness. That's your calling, and that's what you've been chosen for. We're a holy nation. We belong to, yes, our own community, but we are in the world, but not of the world. We don't go along with the ways of the world. We're here to make a difference. We're here to love our neighbors, even our enemies. But we're called to that and we're chosen to be different. And finally, we're called to be faithful. Faithful to Christ with a completely different set of values and priorities and allegiances. We just march to the beat of a different drummer. We don't follow Babylon. We don't follow the woman seated on the beast. We say, nope, not gonna go there. I'm called, I'm chosen, I'm faithful. It's a great encouragement to us today. By the way, we're going to learn more how to do that really, really well in the Good for All Conference coming up October 6th and 7th. And guys, if you have not signed up for that, I really urge you to do so because this conference is designed to help you live in the world, the culture that we live in today that can be very challenging and difficult, but learn how you can be a difference maker in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever you are, and truly shine the light of Jesus. Bob Goff is going to teach us about loving people and about being not distracted, undistracted, um, when there's so many other things that could take our hearts away. Hosanna Wong is going to, and she wrote a book called How Not to Save the World. And we're going to learn strategies about in the midst of this culture. And she lives in San Francisco and is making a stand for Jesus. We're going to learn in the midst of a sometimes hostile and certainly very different culture, uh, to be able to reach out and see people come to know Jesus and to love Jesus. And then Rebecca McLaughlin, going to be amazing. 
She's one of the foremost Christian apologists, defenders of the faith in the, in the English-speaking world. She's just amazing. She's British. You'll love her accent. And she's extremely smart. And she's going to be talking about the secular creed, the creed that we hear day in and day out from culture and how we can answer that, how we can build bridges to that, but also how we can stand firm and relate the truth of Jesus to a world that uh, is sometimes doesn't understand us or sometimes is even oppositional. Do not miss this conference. All right, keep going. Verse 15, he also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitutes are seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, this is pervasive. It, it goes through the whole world. Verse 16, the ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? Wait a minute. How'd that happen? They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. What just happened? This woman who is cooperating with this beast, who's the Antichrist, suddenly, she's the national, she's the movement, she's the culture, suddenly the beast just devours her, takes her in. What's this telling us? That wickedness ultimately turns on itself. That evil devours itself. That actually, all those things that are promised, ultimately, it even destroys itself, is self-defeating. Don't go along with it. These people truly hate one another. They, they, if given the opportunity, they will be traitors even to one another. So don't be deceived by that. For God has put it into their hearts, verse 17, to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Don't be alarmed. God's still in control. He knows what's going on. It's all part of his plan when this occurs, whenever this occurs. And the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. And I guarantee you those first century Christians, they thought he's talking about Rome. He's got to be the great city. And they were right. But they were also not fully right because it wasn't just about the Roman Empire in the first century. It's every kingdom and every culture and every ideology since then leading up to the last, last days when the ultimate great city rises up against Jesus and the church. But this brings us to principle number four. Evil is self-destructive. It turns on itself and eventually disintegrates because God is in control. So don't be overwhelmed by this. Don't, don't, don't fret. Don't, don't freak out. It's going to be okay. Even if the worst happens and you, you see people that there's a great persecution in, in different places in different times, God's still in control. But do be discerning and be wise. Um, one author, Daryl Johnson, in a great book called Discipleship on the Edge about the book of Revelation, he wrote The Seven Marks of Babylon. And I'll just real quick give you those seven marks, all right? A, a culture that's gone astray, a culture that is, is, is opposed to God, has these traits. First trait is they've forgotten God. They're, they're opposed to God. They don't want anything to do with God or Christ, the Bible. There's, a, there's an increase in sensuality, in, in excessive attention to sexuality. There's injustice. There's, there's injustice to people and people who are uh, different races and ethnicities and injustice against the church. There's materialism and greed and thinking that things deliver us satisfaction and contentment. 
there's an increase in violence. It's always angry and mad about stuff and acts out in violence. There's deception, there's lies and corruption. And finally, there's idolatry. Rejecting the one true God and worshiping things that are made by human beings. Babylon in the first century and today is very attractive, persuasive, alluring. But in the end, Babylon shows its true colors. Violent, greedy, abusive. Babylon is a villain. It's a bully, exploiter, a cheater, a liar, an oppressor. In the Old Testament, there are many prophetic doom songs where the prophets speak forth some song or poem of doom against nations and sometimes against Israel that have gone against God. And he says God's going to bring justice eventually. And they're called by theologians prophetic doom songs. Well, chapter 18, which we turn to right now, is kind of like the ultimate prophetic doom song on Babylon. It is all the doom songs rolled into one. It is one epic doom song on Babylon opposed to God, representing all these ideologies, cultures that have been opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, in many ways, this when we get to chapter 18, this is the turning point of the whole book. Um, it is when the bully gets justice. It's when the bully gets his. Um, it reminds me of the moment, do you remember? Back to the Future, Biff, he's picking, he's bullying on George McFly, and it's at the prom, and you know what happens here, and, and George McFly seems so helpless, but finally, finally the moment comes when George McFly brings justice to Biff. Check it out. Yes, Biff, Biff, leave him alone. Let him go. Let him go. Are you okay? Yay! The bully had it coming, and he got it. And that's what's happening in chapter 18. The bully, Babylon, gets justice from God. It's not a revenge. This is, they've reaped, they've sown this, and now they're reaping it. Here it is. Then I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. This is when Babylon, the bully, is knocked out. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and her excess. So 
businesses make lots of money off of this whole trade and industry that is opposed to the ways of Jesus. Then I heard another voice from heaven, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Here's the fifth principle. Our role is to remain fearless and faithful. God has something better for us. He says, don't be taken in by her. Come out from her. Don't, don't swallow these, these, these uh, deceptions. Instead, distance yourself from them. Come out from them. Don't go for cheap invitations. Look to Jesus. Look to his ways. Look to his truth for satisfaction. And don't be afraid, because I will offer you something that will last forever. Skip down to verse 7. For Babylon, she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. She's like, I'm, a, I'm royalty. She's actually a notorious prostitute, but she likes to think of herself as a queen. I'm not a widow. I'm not needy. I'm not poor. I'm not sad. And I will never see grief. Babylon is convinced. I will always be happy. I will always be rich. I will always be prosperous. This will never end. That's how way totalitarian regimes are. It's the way persecutors are. They think they're never, ever going to have to face justice. They're wrong. Over and over, God has offered them mercy. God has offered forgiveness and grace in Jesus and his cross. But they have not only refused the grace and mercy of God, they have mocked it. They have mocked it. They have laughed at it. For this reason, verse 8, her plagues will come in just one day. It'll be sudden. This is symbolic language, remember. All this symbolic. Death and grief and famine and fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. There comes a day when God says, okay, that's it. Enough's enough. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So first the kings of the earth, it's like a funeral dirge. They couldn't believe it. It's like, how did Babylon die? We thought this would go on forever. They're so disappointed and they're so sad because everything they've placed their hope in, everything that they thought would bring them satisfaction is dead and burning. And they're really sad. It brought them nothing but disappointment. And that's what Babylon does to us. It offers us satisfaction and it fails to deliver. It will not last. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys her cargo anymore. They're sad, and even in their mourning, they're kind of selfish. It's like, we're not making any money off of this anymore. We're sad about this. And then they get this whole big list of all the stuff that they uh, can't sell anymore, silver, jewels, gold, all this kind of stuff. And then they get to the final list, the final end of it, and slaves, human lives. The ultimate mistreatment and abuse when human beings are traded like cargo. That's what they called them. And guys, God says, no, I oppose that. I come against that. These are human souls and God judges the injustice. He will do so. And that's our, that's our hope that one day God actually does bring justice. He rights the wrongs that have come. In the Roman world, Slaves were 20% of the population of the Roman Empire. So this was a huge issue. 
And God speaks to those people, many of them Christians now, who've come to faith in Jesus. And they're saying, God, yes, he sees the injustice done to you, and he will come to your rescue. And every shipmaster, seafarer, the sailors, and all who do business by the sea stood far off. They watched the smoke from her burning. Babylon's burning to the ground. And they kept crying out, who is like the great city? They're so sad. They're so disappointed. They threw dust on their heads, and they kept crying out, weeping and mourning. Guys, this is why God warns us to not put our hope and satisfaction in the ways that are contrary to Jesus. Because they promise so much. They're alluring, they're tempting, but they really deliver so little. Everybody who's put their hope in Babylon is sad and mourning at the last day. See, God's counsel to us today is not so much, don't be bad like Babylon. Rather, it is, why would you give your life over to something or someone who is so disappointing, so pathetic, so superficial, and so temporary? The kingdom of Jesus has already outlasted Rome and other empires, and Jesus will reign after they are all dead and gone. Here's the sixth principle. Babylon, all the cultures opposed to Jesus, comes to a tragic and sudden collapse. Babylon cannot endure and only disappoints those who put their hope. So he says, rejoice over her heaven and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. This is joy, not revenge, is joy that justice has been served. The people rejoicing are not armchair critics watching Babylon from a distance. They're not social media personalities. The people rejoicing in this chapter are real people who have been persecuted by Babylon, executed, abused, raped, exploited, maligned, hated, and despised. These are genuine followers of Jesus down through the ages who have never sought to do anything for anyone but to give them the love and hope of eternal life. And they have been so mistreated. And they're now rejoicing that God has finally heard their prayers and has brought justice. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, in this way, Babylon... The great city will be thrown down violently, never to be found again. So there's ultimate justice. Not going to rise again. On that final day, he will put it down forever. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. They got rich off of other people's miseries. They forgot God and let everyone astray with lies and evil. In her was found the blood of the prophets and saints, and of all those slaughtered on the earth. These were killers of countless followers of the Lamb of God, Jesus. And after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. This is the last principle. Lasting joy is found in the God of truth and goodness. We're all seeking satisfaction in life. We're all seeking what will deliver to us the real joy and contentment that we seek. And, um, 
And this whole passage is saying, you know, there's really two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Jesus and there's the kingdom of darkness, of Babylon, of the beast, of Antichrist, everything opposed to God. And intuitively, people follow the ways of the world. They fall in love with these enticements and they're seduced by them if they're not careful. And Jesus offers so much more, lasting contentment, lasting joy. And the, this, these two chapters are saying, this will never deliver to you what you think it will, this kingdom of darkness. Instead, it will persecute you. It will turn on you. And eventually, it will even turn on itself. And the kingdom that will last is the kingdom of Jesus. Everybody wants true satisfaction, lasting joy, and contentment. What do you pursue to get it? He asks us in these two chapters, very seriously, I think, what are you chasing after in your life? As I thought about this whole passage, I thought of something that John wrote in his letter of 1 John. And it really is a letter version of everything we've learned today in Revelation 17, 18. It's 1 John 2, 15 to 19. Let me just read it to you. Do you not love the world? Know the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. He's pleading with us. Not bad, don't be bad. He says, don't fall in love with the world. Because then you'll crowd out the love of God in your life. The world is the moral atmosphere we breathe every day. It's the priorities, the values, the attitudes, and the actions that are not centered on Jesus and on Christ and on, on God. And he says, don't love that world. Don't treasure it. Don't regard it as precious to be captivated by. When you love the world, you crowd out God and the things that last and the true treasures of mercy and beauty and goodness. Verse 16, he says, for the, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. The lust of the flesh is the old translation. Immorality, anger, greed, selfishness. That's all it offers. It, it only offers a craving for everything we see. We, we see something, we've got to acquire it. We think that'll make me happy. The other day, I told Ruth, I said, Ruth, we need some patio furniture. Did you get it? Not we, I want some patio furniture. We need patio furniture. That was wrong. We don't need patio furniture. We need air. We need food. We need clothing. We don't need patio furniture. It's nice, but it's, it's, it's a trick. We think that this is going to deliver to us. It's stuff of the world. And then he says, and they pride in our achievements and our possessions. So this is when we get arrogant and we get prideful and we're trying to outshine other people. That's Babylon, baby. It's all Babylon. It's, it's leading us astray. These are not from the Father, from this world. Verse 17, and this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. I love what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Those 
desires are all passing away. They never satisfy. I was made for another world, for a better world, the world that Jesus offers in this life and in the life to come. And then he ends this little passage in 1 John a strange way. He goes from the love of this world and then immediately goes into verse 18. Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. He says, it's the last hour of your life. Think about how you'd live if it was the very last hour of your life. What would matter to you? Today, guys, it's 9-11. 9-11. And 21 years ago, there was a young Christian man named Todd Beamer. And he was on Flight 93. So terrorists had taken over. And Todd Beamer decided, you know, he was going to oppose evil that day. And it was a scary deal. But he said, you know, in, in the end, I, 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 I want to be known for doing what I could in my life to not just give in to whatever happens, but to make a difference in this world. I want us to watch just a short clip from the movie 9-11 that dramatizes his very first, the last cell phone call he made to a 911 operator. You said, do me a favor. Of course. Say the Lord's Prayer with me. Right now, Todd? Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. And the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You ready? Okay. Incredibly powerful moment. And I'm thankful for a guy like Todd Beamer on 9-11. You know, you're probably never going to be in a situation like that. You're, you're just, we're just ordinary people. And I'm reminded as we close today of, a, of just a simple young woman. Her name was Brooke Bronkowski. And Francis Chan talks about her in his book, Crazy Love. He says, Brooke Bronkowski was a beautiful 14-year-old girl who was in love with Jesus. When she was in junior high, she started a Bible study on her campus. She spent her baby, babysitting money on Bibles so she could give them out to her friends who didn't know Jesus. And youth pastors who heard about this brought boxes of Bibles to her. She put them in a garage to give away. And Brooke wrote the following essay when she was about 12 years old. It will give you an idea of the kind of girl that she was. Here's what she wrote, entitled, Since I Have My Life Before Me. 
She says, I'll live my life to the fullest. I'll be happy. I'll brighten up. I'll be more joyful than I've ever been. I'll be kind to others. I will loosen up. I will tell others about Christ. I will go on adventures, change the world. I will be bold and not change who I really am. I will have no troubles, but instead help others with their troubles. You see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age. Oh, I'll have moments, good and bad, but I will wipe, wipe away the bad and only remember the good. In fact, that's all I'll remember, just good moments. Nothing in between, just living my life to the fullest. I'll be one of those people who goes somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan, and nothing will hold me back. I'll set an example for others. I will pray for direction. I have my life before me. I will give others the joy I have, and God will give me more joy, and I will do everything God tells me to do, and I will follow the footsteps of God, and I will do my best. During her freshman year in high school, two years later, Brooke was in a car accident while driving to the movies. Her life on earth ended when she was 14, but her impact did not. 1,500 people attended her memorial service. People from her public high school wrote poems she had written about her love for God, and they read them. Everyone spoke of her example and her joy. Francis Chan said, and at that service, I shared the gospel and invited those who wanted to know Jesus to come up and give their lives to him. There were at least 200 students on their knees at the front of the church praying for salvation. Ushers gave a Bible to each of them. These were the Bibles that Brooke had kept in her garage, hoping to give out to all of her unsaved friends. In one day, Brooke led more people to the Lord than most ever will. And in her brief 14 years on earth, Brooke was faithful to Jesus. Her short life was not wasted. The words from her essay seem prophetic. She wrote, you see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age. Father in heaven, thank you for this incredible passage that's before us. Speak to us deeply about what we need to do in our own hearts for some to step over that line of faith and to come to trust in you for the first time, saying, I've chased after stuff that doesn't matter and I want to live for Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want Jesus and the forgiveness he offers. I pray that many today will just do that right now. And I pray also, Lord, for all of us to understand that ultimate satisfaction is found not in Babylon, but in Jesus. And I ask this for all of us, in Jesus' name. And everybody greet and say, amen. All right. God bless you all, and have a great day.